It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Welcome to part two of my incredible conversation with Bjorn Lomborg. Bjorn's approach to thinking through the world's hardest problems really highlights what I want people to take away from impact theory in general, how to articulate your values and then align your priorities around them to ensure you actually achieve your goals in a data-driven way. Welcome to a continuation of the masterclass on how to think through hard problems. In today's episode, we dive into even more fascinating territory, including whether the world would be better off with less people, why climate change is not the place to start if you want to really help people and ensure a brighter future, and the exact 12 things we should all be doing right now if we want a much better world. I'm Tom Bilyeu, and welcome back to part two with Bjorn Lomborg. Yeah. So where this really starts to get interesting to me is that as you, when you really step back and you look at, okay, what is the problem we're trying to solve? So going back, people, planet, prosperity, um, there's a real consequence to prosperity. And a lot of these, I don't know if you would make this through line, but when I was going through all the different pieces, one of the things that kept coming back up is as humans thrive, they begin to prosper. And then there's a real knock-on effect to that prosperity. Um, so before we go through some more of the 12, I'd like to ask directly, what are the consequences of taking someone out of poverty? Uh, it, I, I think we almost can't imagine because you and I and most uh, who are probably listening to this just simply because they are on the internet and have what, several hours to spend on listening on this are just so far removed from absolute grinding poverty where you really don't know whether your kids are going to survive, whether you're going to have enough money uh, to make it through the day, yet, uh, let alone uh, you know, next month. Uh, and you're, you're forced to, you know, so about 700, uh, sorry, 680 million people live for what, what most people have heard of less than $1 a day. That's actually $2.15, uh, uh, per day, uh, uh, now because of inflation. That's way too many. But when I was a kid, that number was a lot bigger. Yes. Yes. And that, that was also what you said. You know, we've had amazing progress in dealing with, uh, 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 poverty. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I actually write that in the book, uh, if you take over the last 25 years, each and every day, we have lifted as a human collective, the world has lifted 138,000 people out of poverty each and every day for the last 25 Jesus, years. Man. Uh, it is just astounding. And, and so again, it also goes to your point of saying, you know, we hear a lot about this, uh, the world is terrible. And yes, there are problems out there. Uh, but 
every, each and every day, every paper in the world could have it as, as a headline. Over the last 24 hours, the world lifted 138,000 people out of poverty. And we could have had that every day. And we don't because it's not a new story. It's not, you know, sexy or interesting in the same way as, oh, my God, you know, this airplane crashed or something. But, you know, we should recognize that this is a huge achievement. And this is what means that it's possible for people to start making slightly longer term decisions. So we know, for instance, when people start to have a little bit of capital, and this will often just be, you know, a, a, a goat or a, a couple of chickens or something that they can actually sell, they start thinking more about how can I make sure that my kids regularly go to school so that they can learn more, so that they can become more prosperous and be even more uh, 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 um, productive than I am. Uh, and you know, make their their kids' lives even better. So you know, it has this knock-on so effect. Education. That that's exactly yeah. what I want to talk about. These knock-on effects. So one of them is education. Um, yeah. What what else is a consequence of pulling people out of grinding poverty? That they can avoid dying from easily curable infectious diseases. If if uh, a country has more than ten thousand dollars per per person per year in GDP, there's no malaria. So, you know, fundamentally, once you get sufficiently rich, you as an individual can afford to buy the medication, which means that you won't have the malaria parasite in you. That's good for you because then you survive or you make sure that your kid gets this medication. But it also means that, you know, nobody has gotten rid of all mosquitoes, unfortunately. Right? But, but uh, uh, so there's still mosquitoes. But if they bite you and you don't have malaria, it can't get malaria to me because it doesn't have the malaria mosquito to go around. It needs to bite other people who have malaria in order to transmit this. And so what happens is you both have people buying this medication and then the society that sets up uh, regulations and also you know, drains the swamps and make sure that you spray those places that are really pesky and make sure that when you know when somebody comes in, uh, we have this you know, couple of times a year. Somebody comes in uh, with a disease from uh, from from a poor country. They come into Sweden, then we treat them because we can afford to. So once a country gets sufficiently rich you don't die from easily curable infectious diseases. And of course, lifting everyone else up is both great because you can actually do a lot more good, but it also means you stop dying and your kids stop dying. Mm. Yeah, so this this through line that uh, I think you intended, but certainly that I took away from your work is that, okay, as we start tackling these things with the um People, prosperity, planet as a North Star, we're looking at what does the most good as, uh, you know, benchmarked against those three things. As we begin to do this, there becomes a self-reinforcing loop. Now, I often heard you talk about this in terms of climate change, but I thought it was a really brilliant rejoinder to, hey, I get it. You're trying to address all this stuff at the level of climate, but if you address this at the level of remove people from poverty, you're actually solving for the thing I think you all actually want to solve for, which is that humans are able to deal with climate better than they were before. Because one of the the sort of counterintuitive things that I've heard you say uh, that certainly doesn't get talked about is that uh, it used to be some ungodly number of people, I think 500 
thousand people a year were killed by climate related um, uh, devastation. And now that number is like 11,000. And so that's a 99% reduction in the thing that, that people are really worried about. And I was like, how the hell is that possible? Like, what are we doing? And then you were like, you get them out of poverty. And some of these things just become, and, and I should stop. I'm really couching it because because I think that there is a sense, and of course I am very biased because I have I have done very well for myself, but there's this sense of like people that have generated wealth are evil. And I want people to understand, eh, like we want everyone to be wealthy instead of everyone being poor. Like if we're trying to, to make things equal and we want to see people all on an even playing field, I would really encourage people to look at uh, things you can do to lift people up rather than knock people down. Because... <laughs> they become more resilient because their kids are more likely to survive, because they're more likely to get educated. And some of the things, in fact, one of the things that we should probably address head on is, do you believe the world is fundamentally better off with less people? Um, all right, so I just wanna answer the, the other part or comment on the other part. I think that's exactly right. That This is a question of saying, if you can make people better off, they will become better off in so many other ways. Uh, I, I think most people don't have a clear picture. 200 years ago, so in 1820, uh, it's estimated that 90% of everyone living on the planet were below a dollar a day or the $2.15 today. We were extremely poor, except for a very, very small class of people who all wore those fancy ropes and 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 lorded over uh, the rest of us. Uh, and and we've basically gone from a world where ninety percent were poor to a world where ninety, or actually ninety-two or three percent, are not poor. That's a fantastic world. And that is really a world that's worth going for. And, and so that just uh, emphasizes your, your argument. Now, a lot of people will say uh, if, if we had fewer people, we would have less pressure on the environment. It's typically sort of an environmental pro, uh, 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 sort of argument. And, and technically, that's obviously true. Uh, all other things equal. Uh, if you had fewer people, there would be you know, less air pollution, there'd be less uh, uh, pressure on nature because we wouldn't have to grow as much food and so on. Uh, the problem with that argument is really just, sorry, who is going to stop being there? Uh, you know, it, it's not like or there's who's going to stop having people. kids, man. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, when, when you sort of probe people a little bit on this conversation, it's typically, you know what? There's a little bit too many of you and just enough of me. Uh, which, you know, sort of comes across as a little hypocritical. Um, the real answer, of course, is it's not like we have a lever where we can say, you know what, we're 8 billion, but now we're going to turn it down to 2 billion, or at least not without going into some really, really nasty ways to reduce those numbers, right? So the reality is what we can discuss is, what kind of future would we like? Would we like a world where there's 12 billion people or would we like a world where there's like 9 billion people or would we like a world where there's 7 billion people by the end of the century? Uh, and that's something that we, to a certain degree, can decide on. Uh, and, and I think what we know reduces the number of people is getting more opportunities for women, 
and getting more education for women. So that is women can get better educated and they can actually get a job. They can have businesses. And if they have those things, it typically means they will want to have fewer kids because the alternatives just got better. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I think everyone would agree. Those are good things, education for women and opportunities for women. And that will sort of automatically uh, reduce the, the load. Nobody's worried about this sort of runaway population, which I think is really the backbone for much of the conversation about, oh, we should have fewer people that will end up with 20 or 30 or 100 billion uh, people. That's just not in the in the cards. And I think we also need to recognize, and this is, I think, still an unsolved question, to what extent is a society where you end up with fewer people? We're seeing that in many rich countries today, not in the U.S. still, because you're having a lot of people immigrate into the U.S. Uh, but, you know, for instance, Japan, Russia, very clearly, although Russia is sort of an outline in so many other ways. Let's let's look at Japan, you know, countries where you have women deciding to, on average, if you had sort of a repopulation, or a permanent, uh, sorry, a stable population, uh, the average woman would get 2.1 kids. So two to replicate the man and the woman, and then 0.1, uh, because some of these kids are going to die before uh, they get old enough to get their own kids. So 2.1 is the sort of stable level. In many of these countries, so South Korea, many others, uh, you have just over one. And that will lead to dramatic depopulation. That means suddenly your house is no longer as much worth, especially if you're in the countryside, because nobody will be living there in 50 or 100 years. It means a lot of your infrastructure is going to be outmoded. It also means that there'll be a lot fewer people to take care of you when you get old. Mm. And now we imagine that you know robots and that kind of thing could take over for some of that. It's uh, crazy that's that that's real cool. talk now. That's nuts. Oh, although I'm I'm a little concerned about, you know, my my old age just being cared for by robots but yeah who knows maybe that could be very nice uh but but it has a lot of potential downsides as well and then of course there's that overarching argument of saying fewer people means less innovation uh so there's a real cost and and the way it's often been argued is that uh, uh an extra person means an extra mouth, which is a problem because you need to feed that mouth. But it also means an extra pair of hands that can actually work and an extra brain that can come up with a brilliant new idea. And, and the the sort of outcome of those things is not settled. I think it's probably arguable that uh, that it's not overall good to have a lot fewer people. But again, my argument is much more of a marginal point is not to say, do you want to go from the 8 billion we have now down to a billion now? Because there's no way to do that without killing a lot of people. And I don't see anyone being actually willing to do that. Uh, but the real question is, how do we want to get it in 2100? And honestly, this is just not something that we can precisely engineer. We should get uh, women better opportunities. And that will mean fewer kids. And that will probably mean that we'll be more likely to end at you know, nine or maybe even seven billion uh, by the end of the century. And then I think we will start having that conversation about saying, how do we get women to have more kids, uh, which is going to be a whole other kettle of fish. Well, we're already there in some places for sure. Yes. I know that there have been incentives in Japan and I think Korea, uh, China as well, I think started, well, they had a 
Would they tax you if you didn't have enough kids? I don't remember. So forgive me on that. But there, there are incentives that are being rolled out now in different countries because the population is far, it, not only is it far more likely to collapse, it is already decreasing uh, yep. at some pretty dramatic rates. And this is math. You can't raise a kid faster. Uh, takes nine months to make one. And then you got to raise them to maturity and you know give them some time before they have their own kids. So that once that starts declining, that's a pretty slow reversal. It takes multi-generations to get that moving in the opposite direction. Uh, and so far, at least in rich countries, to my knowledge, um, the incentives just to have more kids have not worked well if i am tracking they, they work a little bit as you'd imagine you know all the things equal you're more likely to have more kids but they they only work marginally so you know mm -hmm. instead of having 1.2 you might you know squeeze people up to 1.3 so it's going to be a little bit of the solution uh but it's not the main part of the solution uh, and again, this goes to a lot of other things. Uh, and uh, and now I'm going to pull that card of saying this is not my expertise. Uh, but but in some ways, my my point is I'm trying to trade in on stuff we know works. Uh, so we know that e-procurement is something we should do. Uh, the, 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 uh, the, the number of kids is almost the opposite kind of argument. We have no clue on how to make that number move dramatically. Mm. And we have no idea whether that's actually a really good or a really bad thing. And people will have varying views on, on this all across the spectrum. And that's why I would say, look, this is, this is an interesting conversation. I think it's very unlikely that we will have a huge impact on this in any short or medium term. Uh, and what we want to do is to make sure that women have better opportunities. And that will have a very predictable outcome of saying we're not going to end up at the 10, 20 uh, billion uh, people by the end of the century. So we can sort of lay that uh, panic uh, to rest. All right, let's get back to some of the things that work. So uh, we've so far talked about e-procurement, the baby breathing thing. I certainly mentioned that briefly. Uh, what are some other ones that have big impacts? So let me actually just take you up on that one because that's just a very, very small part of it. It's, it's, uh, helping, uh, moms and, uh, uh, newborn kids, uh, just around pregnancy. It's a terribly dangerous thing. It used to be very dangerous for women in rich countries, uh, to be treated, uh, uh, to have, to be pregnant. Uh, almost a percent of all women in pregnancy would die. Uh, this was terribly dangerous. Uh, it was actually more dangerous for rich women uh, back in the 1800s uh, because they would be more likely to go to hospitals. And in the hospitals, the doctor would just go from amputating a leg and then you know come and mess around and give you uh, uh, a purpural fever. I'm not sure what that's called in English, uh, but you know the thing that you die from. Right. Uh, so so uh, so the idea here is we've. Put, gotten that under control, but still about 300,000 women die each and every year uh, in pregnancy, and about 2.3 million kids die in their first 28 days in life. Uh, and we know how to fix this. This is not rocket science. It is basically about getting women into uh, uh, institutional birth. So when complications arise, there's an opportunity to do something about it. And then that you have those very basic uh, emergency obstetric opportunities. And this is a package of things. One of the things that you mentioned is this, uh, this mask that you give kids. So as you mentioned, 5% of all kids, uh, come out of mom. 
and don't breathe. And you basically need to put a mask on them and pump in air into their lungs and then they start going and then they're safe. Uh, and you need that in poor countries. But even if you come into uh, a, a, a birth facility, many of them won't have this uh, this little mask. It costs, what, $75? Uh, and over its three-year lifetime, it can probably save about 25 lives. Wow. That's a, an enormous effective thing. Now, I'm not arguing that everybody should go out and do a you know, GoFundMe uh, thing just for that, because this is about getting all of the structure in there. So it's about getting the moms into uh, giving birth in institutions. So about two thirds do that now. We're arguing we should get like 90% of all uh, women in there. And then these institutions should have a lot of different things. They should have disinfectants. They should have clean water. You'd imagine these were obvious things, but they're still not implemented. We've identified how much would that cost. Much of this is also just simply when the hospital administrator decides what should you buy uh, uh, with your uh, with your budget, uh, a lot of them end up with buying the machine that says ping. If you remember that one from Monty Python, only, you know, only because of you. But yes, I I am yes, well it's, familiar. It's, it's, it's a it's a it's a skid where where you know they have all the doctors, all the machines in there because the administrator is coming and they want to show the most expensive machine that says ping, and that's all we ever learn about it. But you know they're so oh there's something. Oh, we're missing the mom, right? So, so they they realize that John Cleese is doing most of the talking. It's a very fun uh, uh, skit, but you know, fundamentally, you get the idea that nobody, no doctor is going to be excited about getting this mask. I mean, how's that fun? I'm not going to go to a conference and say we have a mask for seventy five dollars, right? You want to be able to have we have the newest MRI scanner or whatever it is, right? But we need to get hospital administrators and everybody else to spend money on boring old stuff that will actually save a lot of people. So we estimate that the total cost is going to be about $5 billion. A lot of this is cost for the women. Uh, so uh, it's almost $2 billion of that cost is the cost uh, in uh, terms of lost income for the women. Typically, you'll work right up to the day and possibly even some of the day where you give birth. And then the day after, you'll you'll go back to work. Uh, but here, if you go into an institution, you'll actually have to take some days off, and that has a huge cost. And when we're doing this for 27 million women every year, that actually adds up. Uh, so $3 billion in actual cost and then $2 billion in extra cost for the women. That total cost will save about 166,000 moms, and it'll save 1.2 million kids. Each and every dollar will, on average, deliver $87 worth of good. That's just one of those many amazing things we could do. So, you know, again, we've had some of these people do all of the math, look at all of the costs in all of the different countries. And of course, this is not true in this in a, in a total mess, metaphysical sense. It's not like all the cents and, and dollars are going to uh, tally up exactly. But it's the best knowledge that we have, what our best models show, what this increase would cost, and how many people this would save. It's just a phenomenal uh, 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 policy. Okay. So, uh, for whatever reason, this one just hit me in terms of, okay, uh, going back to climate, no one here, certainly not I, and I know not you is saying that climate is, we, we are saying climate is a problem. Uh, it needs to be addressed. And, but when you go back to, uh, people, planet prosperity, and you're taking the balance of those, if you're only losing 500,000 people to climate problems um, now, 
And what you're just talking about, getting women into institutions for birth, getting them the sanitization, getting them the little breathing thing. Um, if if that's saving over a million people, you're already 2x of when climate was the worst in terms of the number of people that it was killing, which was 500,000. It's now whatever, 11,000. So compared to even what climate is now, it's just massive, 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 massive. Uh, Lee, more impactful in terms of saving lives. But it does beg the question. So if I'm somebody that's like really, really, the climate is is the meteorite streaking towards Earth that is going to uh, just cause, you know, mass extinction, basically. I go to the the movie um, The Day After Tomorrow. Did you see that movie? Yes, I did. Okay, so uh, that that was really sobering. This thought that like, okay, we're everything is just so delicately balanced. And if we fall out of balance, then like this cascading thing can happen that basically brings an ice age effectively overnight. And yeah. even if even if that happened, say over 12 months, it it would just be unimaginably devastating. Um it so it begs the question. Is there anything that we see in the data that leads us to believe that let's just assume we do nothing for climate and everybody just keeps doing their thing and we keep making people richer. Uh, China keeps bringing on coal plants, like just every bad, 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 bad. Um, Could it get that kind of catastrophic? So. Uh, if you just ask it, could it? Is there a non-zero probability that it could be catastrophic? Yes, of course. There, there, there's a non-zero probability for everything. Red-haired women could take over the world tomorrow. Uh, that's a non-zero probability, right? So, so th- th- that's not really the question. The question is, is, is it realistic that this would happen? And no, the answer is no. Uh, so, uh, in almost all of the UN climate is it, panel, yeah, this is no, what I was going to ask. Based based on the data, it's a no. Well, no, you can't base this on data because we, you know, we're t- you're talking about the future, so you have to base it on models uh, because we don't have data for the future. We're worried about the future, so we have to ask what do the models indicate will happen if, in in reason in reasonable worst case outcomes, uh, and and almost everything that the UN Climate Panel shows is that this is a problem, but that it's not by any means sort of end of the world or anywhere close to that. Uh, so the only climate econ- so climate economics have spent a very large time trying to estimate not just what is the bad things that could happen, but try to give that an economic estimate. So, you know, get, get a sense of proportion. How bad will this be? And so the only climate economist to win the Nobel Prize in climate economics, uh, William Nordhaus from Yale University in 2018, his model show, uh, but many other models show reasonably the similar uh, outcomes show that if we do nothing, and again, nobody is suggesting that that's the right out, uh, that that's the right policy decision. But if we just let everything happen uh, and and just let sort of global warming get worse and worse, then by the end of the century. All the negative impacts and all the positive impacts, remember, there's both negatives and positive, but the negatives outweigh the positives. That's why it's a net negative. Uh, The net negative will feel like we're 4% less well off than we otherwise would be. So it's a 4% problem. That's that's basically what he won the Nobel Prize for. And that's certainly a problem. Now, remember, by the end of the century, the UN estimate that we will be much richer than we are today. They actually estimate on a reasonable sort of middle of the road scenario 
that the average person in the world will be 450% as rich as he or she is today. So that's a phenomenally much better world. That's the one where we've lifted a lot of people out of poverty as well. There, there'll be no poverty, no $1 a day poverty. Of course, then we'll mm. be worrying about you know $100 a day poverty instead or $10 poverty, whatever. But fundamentally, so on average, we expect that we'll be 450% as rich by the end of the century. But because of global warming, unmitigated global warming, it'll feel like we're only 434% as rich, 4% reduction of that, right? So 434% as rich is not the end of the world. It's a much better world, but it's a slightly less better world than it otherwise would have been, which is that, why- That must be I'm very a, controversial. Is Nordhaus a controversial figure? Because obviously- He has, be, yeah. he he has, has become, become controversial. controversial. He's become controversial. Every you know, Look, pretty much everyone in climate economics agrees with him. Uh, you can find people that can sort of come up with these really, really unrealistic. It might be even 10%, but it's not going to change the argument. Uh, you need to get up to you know, 80, 90, close to 100% for this really to hit home. Uh, and nobody can show these sorts of numbers. There are some people out there who say that, but they have no good evidence for why this would be the case. And, and so, and they're not well respected. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash impact theory.
In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need, and Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. Is there any model from a crackpot or otherwise, I mean, a player in the space, um, but a player in the space, even if they're considered like, "Mm, I'm not so sure about this guy. Is there anybody that has models that um, put that kind of number on the board that this would be an 80 to 90% reduction in the the growth rate? The worst that's out there, and I think, most people would agree this has pretty well been debunked, uh, and we could walk, I could walk you through that, but that that take quite a while. Uh, is sort of uh, is it twenty three percent, and that's it, it's just simply wrong in in many different ways. Uh, but th- th- that's a period study that has been referenced a lot. Uh, but even that would not generate this. Right? It would be sort of a decade worth of of economic growth that we'd lose out on over this century. Which obviously would be tragic and would be uh, better to not have that, but it's not going to be by any realistic sense uh, the end of the world, and it's not going to be such that we'll be worse off, we'll be less well, we'll be less better off uh, than we otherwise would have been, and that's the crucial bit. That's the 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 sort of the the missing conversation in this. If it's the end of the world, it makes good sense to say. You should throw everything in the kitchen sink at this. If it's a problem, you should obviously, and, and you know, Nordhaus sense a four percent problem. You should be, if you can throw one or two percent at it and fix all of it, that's great. But if you throw you know five to ten percent at it and fix a little bit of the four percent, that's really stupid. And so that's the conversation that you really need to have. And unfortunately, uh, much of the com- much of the policy conversation is let's throw five to ten percent at it and only fix part of it, which turns out to be a very poor use of resource. Uh, it doesn't mean we shouldn't fix it, but we should fix it much smarter. Yeah. Okay. So um, if I were to channel the people, because um, there there is a. Ooh, I don't want to get uh, sucked into all the debates, but I do want to be fair to some of the things that uh, are out there and at least their frame of reference. Nobel Memorial Prize winner Joseph Stiglitz said it would be outright dangerous for people to be persuaded by Bjorn Lomborg's arguments. Um, yes. So what if, if I'm going to put that hat on and I'm going to channel him for a second, 
I want to make sure that we start teasing these things out. So, um, one, you said that uh, Nord Stream, Nord, Nord House, thank you, uh, that he's become a controversial figure. So I, I want to make sure everybody understands there's a lot of debate around this stuff. And so um, if if I channel uh, um, the guy that Stiglitz. we were just talking about, Stiglitz, yeah. thank you. Uh, if I channel him, what I would say is, hey, look. Uh, I can't help but notice that climate is not on your 12 things. So you say, let's do something about it, but you wrote a whole book about let's do these 12 things first. And uh, we've just spent the last 30 years finally getting people to pay attention to the only thing that really is existential. Uh, I love it. I love the idea of um, pulling, uh, getting women to have birth in hospitals. I, I understand that, but like that's never going to be existential. So why are we wasting even a second on things that are just sort of incremental improvement when we have this thing that that could truly be cataclysmic um, hurtling at us? So I've already heard you, and you've said it multiple times in this interview, and you've definitely spent a lot of time saying it to other people that uh, this just isn't world ending. And without getting into like a full blown, bringing somebody else on to challenge all the points, um, I just want to plant for people that, okay, this, this is where we get into sort of, this is a, a debated thing. But what I hear you saying, and this is what I found compelling, but let me know if I'm, I'm making a leap too far here, that when we look at that 250% better, we are specifically talking about the kind of things that are in the twelve or maybe exactly the 12, like those are the things that are actually going to have the impact on prosperity and people, so lives and prosperity that we want. And by raising those two things, you will very intentionally, but it it's just a second order consequence, take care of the climate. Is that your stance? Uh, somewhat. Uh, so let me just, first of all, I, I have a whole rebuttal of, uh, of Stiglitz, uh, and Stiglitz is not a climate economist, but you know, he, he's a smart guy. Uh, and, and he's certainly, so very what's the difference? Sort of Cause he won a Nobel prize for something with climate in the title. Uh, no. he, 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 Nobel, he won oh, a, sorry, Nobel Memorial prize. Okay. So I don't yeah, know. He, what? he won his uh, Nobel on, on, uh, models of, of, uh, of signaling essentially, uh, his most famous model is on, on why it's really hard to sell used cars. Uh, because uh. you know, whether it's a good or a bad car, a lemon, uh, but other people don't. Um, it's a very good paper. Uh, it's a, it's a fun point. Uh, we've debated several times. Uh, I, I think Stiglitz is in way over his head and he knows that that's what I think. Uh, but that's a, that's a conversation for a different time. Uh, uh, Nordhaus is only controversial, not among economists, but among all the people who want desperate, strong climate action, because obviously that you, that, that's not compatible with what he's actually found. Uh, and, and so I think it's mostly sort of a reasoned argument uh, that I don't like his conclusions, so he must be wrong, mm -hmm. uh, which is not a terribly strong scientific argument. Uh, but, that. but that's a whole different kind of conversation. But I think it's a very crucial point. Why don't I have climate as one of these uh, uh, 12? And the simple answer is it's because there is no climate policy that has you know a substantial sort of uh, 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 spending that delivers at least $15 back on the dollar. Now, most climate policies that we do in the West, so for instance, the Paris Agreement, 
delivers about 10 cents back on the dollar. That is, it actually destroys value. It costs a lot of money and it delivers a little bit of good for climate. So it's a bad idea. Uh, now, you can have a lot of conversation. A lot of people would be very angry to hear that. I think we have very good academic arguments that it's less than a dollar back on the dollar. Uh, but you know, 10 cents exactly, who knows? It could be 30 cents. There's some people who would even argue, you know, if you really sort of tune all the characters to get the right politically uh, right result, you might make it one and a half dollars back in the dollar. That is it. It's a good investment. But it's nowhere near as good an investment as these other things. So that's right, the I'm gonna, simple argument. I'm going to ask a really yeah. gross question. And now I am yes. way over my head. Uh, but this is very much, hey, thinking through novel problems. Um, a guy that I know called Tom tells me you should just go ahead. Yep, that's that's where I'm at. Ooh, am I gonna perhaps rue the day? I don't think I've ever uttered this name uh, in the podcast, maybe once or twice. But uh, Trump pulled America out of the Paris uh, Climate Agreement, whatever. I'm yes. not sure how to frame it. Um, was he right? Uh, uh, I think he was possibly right for the wrong reasons. I mean, his argument was basically, this is costing America a lot of money and it's not doing very much good, so I'm going to pull it out. It's not going to do America a lot of good. Remember, the reason why we care about global warming, presumably, is because this will affect all of the world. It'll actually not affect rich countries all that much, partly because rich countries are uh, typically fairly high-latitude countries, so more warmth I come from Sweden, right? I mean, not like we're going to be sorry that it gets a little better weather. But if you live further, uh, you know, closer to the equator, that is actually a problem. Uh, partly when you're richer, you're also more resilient. So you have less problems with you know, more storms or more uh, 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 more floods, that kind of thing. So so I, I think there's some truth to this. I would never just go ahead and say this is, you know, Trump was just right on this and, and good for him. It's more sort of a, uh, I, the way I heard it was that, uh, you know, he got part of it. But it was not you know, the right way to deal with with this would have been to say we should do something else. And we actually did that uh, all the way back to our start of our conversation. We not only did this for all the really smart things to do in the world, which is the best things first. We also did a similar process where we said, if you were to spend money on climate, how would you do that in the best possible way? So not say anything else. Just say we want to spend money on climate. Where do you get the biggest bang for your biggest climate bang? for your book. And it turns out by far the best investment is in innovation. And if you think about it, it really makes sense. Uh, back in the 1950s, Los Angeles was a terribly polluted place, mostly because of cars. The solution was not to tell everyone, I'm sorry, could you walk instead? Because that, that would never convince anyone in Los Angeles, right? But the solution was instead innovating what was known as the catalytic converter, a little gizmo innovated in 1978 that you put on a car tailpipe and it basically get rid of most of the pollution. Uh, this is the air pollution part. Uh, but that's why you can drive a lot longer and have much cleaner. I'm not saying Los Angeles is great or anything, but it's much, much cleaner than it was in the 1950s, mostly because of that innovation. Yeah, it has a cost of a couple hundred dollars, but we basically convinced everyone in the world for a couple hundred dollars, sure, I'll do that in order to not cough. And we've gotten everyone in the world to do that. That's how we solve global warming, not by telling everyone to be worse off, but by telling people, if you invest a little bit of money, and we're talking about $100 billion there uh, for, for innovation and research and development and green energy, 
You will innovate the technologies that are going to be so cheap faster so that everyone will eventually switch. And let me just give you one example, and then I, I would love to go back to the other uh, to the other things. Uh, but Craig Venter, the guy who uh, cracked the human genome, I actually back met in Craig Venter. Yeah, no, I know him. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Don't know uh, so well by has, any means, but he's 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 uh, he's he's a he, he seems like a very interesting guy. I don't know, uh, but he has a lot of slightly crazy ideas, but also really really interesting ideas. So one of his ideas is uh, imagine taking a gene modified algae that basically takes sunlight and CO2 and transforms it into oil. Then we just put it out on the ocean surface. We grow our own Saudi Arabia out there. It'll soak up all the CO2. So then we'll harvest all the oil and then we'll keep our entire fossil fuel economy, but driven on this oil that we just produced out in the ocean surface. So it's CO2 neutral. How cool is that? Mm. Right, You can make it work in principle, but it's not anywhere close to commercially viable. But you know, Let's give that man a couple of million dollars to see if he can make this work a lot cheaper and a lot better. If he can, he'll be the richest guy in the world and he will make every one of us much, much better off because we'll have, you know, basically infinite uh, 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 energy without the CO2 problem. That'd be fantastic. Now, there's a very good chance this won't work, (laughs) but we should invest in a thousand things like that. And we really just need one or a few of them to come true. And those are the ones that are going to power the 21st century. Right now, we're instead saying, no, no, no. Let's make it more costly to cut back on on CO2. It's going to cost these trillions of dollars. Rich countries are sort of saying they want to do it. But poor countries, China, India, Africa, no, not going to happen. And so in reality, we're spending a lot of money. And we're very likely to not achieve anything. And that's why I'm arguing. And that was what our economists showed. And we had three Nobel laureates involved in this. And they basically said the very best long-term solution is to dramatically increase our investment in green energy R&D. So we should definitely do that. But what we found was that was $11 back in the dollar. So had we set that target at you know 10 instead, uh, but that's just historically not what we've done. It's not because we wanted to sort of skew this. It's just because we didn't want to have, you know, if, we, if we'd if set it at five, we'd have, what, um, 40 or 100 uh, different ideas. It would also be much harder to know whether we've gotten all of them. And that's why we've historically set it at 15. Uh, so that's why green innovation is not in there. Mm, uh, but, right. you know. Fundamentally, it's just simply a question of saying, where can you spend the money and do the most good? But it it necessitates that you stop believing, oh, but if we don't fix my favorite problem first, nothing else matters. Uh, and and you know, a reasonable number of people will say, look, there'll still be poor people in 2030, but if we don't do something about climate, it'll be the end of the world. And I, I get that. If, if that's your frame of mind, that actually makes perfect sense. It just happens to not be correct. Right. Okay, so um, going back, um, we've got e-procurement, we've got mothers going into hospital sanitation, babies breathing, that's two. Uh, Hit us with number three. So uh, take uh, uh, some of these very, very simple diseases like tuberculosis and malaria. Uh, Tuberculosis is what killed a fourth of everyone in the 1800s. If you watch Moulin Rouge, Satine, oh, I'm going to give away the ending. Uh, spoiler, alert. spoiler alert, she dies again, right? Uh, uh, and, and you know, she dies from tuberculosis. Uh, everybody died from tuberculosis. This was a huge killer. We estimate over the last 200 years, about a billion people 
died from tuberculosis. It was a tsunami of death uh, over much of the rich world. And then we got antibiotics. You know, we used to send people in sanatoria. Now we fixed it with antibiotics. We're fine. We don't have tuberculosis or essentially don't have tuberculosis. Uh, there's a little bit of tuberculosis with the HIV epidemic from the 80s onwards, mm. but it's still very, very little in rich countries. And it's mainly a, 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 a knock-on effect of HIV. It's not actually tuberculosis. It's just the thing that kills uh, some of the people with HIV. So the reality is we fix in the rich world, but we haven't done that in the poor part of the world. This is simply about making sure that people keep taking their medication. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why that's hard is you actually have to take your medication for half a year. Uh, if you've ever you know, had a, uh, your doctor prescribe you two weeks of, of, uh, of antibiotics for something, you know, after uh, you get well after the first week, it's kind of hard to remember to do it the other week, right? And imagine doing this for a whole half year. Uh, so there's lots of, you know, you game, gamified, you get people in apps, you, uh, you get uh, tuberculosis anonymous where you meet once a, a week or a month and say, yes, I took all my medications and, you know, that kind of stuff. You give people a, a little prize to do it. And it feels a little wrong that you have to give people a prize, you know, like a juice carton or something. Uh, but if you think about it, if you make sure that these people don't have tuberculosis, they don't get to pass it on to 10 to 15 other people. That's how you stop an epidemic. Uh, so it has huge societal benefits. And then there's also a very large number of people that have tuberculosis that never get discovered. Uh, so three, four, five million people each year. We need to go out and screen those much more in Bangladesh again. They had uh, uh, old, typically uh, 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 widows that would have 15 families in their neighborhood. And they would go every once in a while and listen to them and say, hey, has anyone been coughing for a long while? And if if the answer keeps being yes, then they make sure that that person gets in and get checked up on, on tuberculosis. Those kinds of things. Yes, it has a cost. We estimate it would cost about $6 billion in total. But then we could long-term avoid almost a million people dying each and every year from tuberculosis. This is simply something, again, we should do. Every dollar spent will deliver $46 of social benefits. Whoa. This is just an incredible uh, investment. Uh, likewise, with malaria, I'm not going to go into that, but it's basically about getting more mosquito nets out. Uh, we used to have lots of malaria. Malaria was endemic in 36 states in the U.S. It was, uh, you know, it was so endemic in India, for instance, that many places in India, we believe in the early part of last century, were unlivable. Uh, but now it, we've eradicated many different places, mostly in the rich world. It's almost gone in, in most other places, but in Africa, mostly because they have a mosquito that only bite people, whereas we have mosquitoes that'll bite people and livestock. So if you have lots of livestock, there's a lot less chance that you're actually going to get the malaria. And they also have a worse kind of uh, malaria, uh, a more deadly kind of uh, malaria. Uh, so they're just simply, they they had the unlucky draw. Uh, but if we get more mosquito nets, insecticide-treated mosquito nets, we could save about half of the, there's so about 600,000 people die each year. Uh, for about $1.1 billion, we could save about 200,000 lives each and every year again. Uh, so the benefit cost ratio is about 48. So these are boring things, you know, TB, tuberculosis, or malaria, not sexy things that we talk about, but they just happen. Pretty to be rad if your kid is the one that has the tuberculosis. Yes. So let me tell exactly. you, like, 
Yeah. They're incredibly important for those people. Uh, and, and of course, also, we believe uh, that not only uh, is malaria terrible uh, for the people who die, but most people actually don't die from malaria. They're just terribly, terribly ill. And so we believe a lot of people in Africa are actually employed such that you need to have two employees because one of them is going to be as likely to be sick with malaria. Uh, and that's, of course, terribly inefficient. Uh, so you could also make the, the societies much more effective and hence richer and more resilient and more pr- prosperous if you got rid of malaria. So this is just one of those no-brainers that we should be doing. All right. Um, so I think it would be useful to go through all of them. Uh, I don't know if you you can pop them off just can off I, the top of your head. Can I just give but... you one more? Because we talked we talk about education at, at first. Yeah. I think it'd be great to just finish that up. Formalize it's also, that? It's the, it's the most expensive thing that we're suggesting. And it's also one of the most impactful of, mm. of all of these things that we're talking about. So as, as we, as we talk about, there's a huge dearth of good education in the world. Uh, so we, we work really, really hard in getting all the people in the poor part of the world into school. They're now in school, but they're not learning very much. So the right answer is not to, you know, double teachers pays or build lots more schools or that kind of thing. Yes, it has some benefits somewhere. And some countries actually have a lot more kids coming in. So they will have to build schools. But it's not the way that you actually solve this problem. The way you solve it. And so we asked a lot of, 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 of the world's top uh, economy, uh, education economists. They all said the same thing. There are two ways that you solve this. One is to teach at the right level. And I'm just going to tell you what that is. So, so don't separate all, by age, separate by skill set. Well, yes. So, so you know, everywhere in the world, we have all the 12-year-olds in the same class, all the 13-year-olds in the same class. But especially in poor countries, these 12-year-olds are widely different in ability. Some of them are way ahead of the teacher. Many of them have no clue what's going on in the in the class. Ideally, that teacher should teach each one of those kids at his or her own level. But of course, you can't do that if you have 50 kids in in your class. But what you can do, and we know this from lots and lots of experiments, if you and and large-scale experiments with hundreds of thousands of kids, if you put these kids, say, in front of a tablet one hour a day, this tablet has educational software on it. It'll very quickly find out where your exact level is and start teaching you at that level. So your whole day will be seven hours of boring old classes that don't really work. And then one hour of this where you actually get to interact with uh, the uh, the tablet. We do Are you this familiar with the X Prize? Um, they did a prize around learning on this. Is that part of what you guys looked at? I know that it's there, uh, but no, this this is this is research that's been going on for at least 10, 15 years where they have investigated these sorts of, of uh, educational softwares and found out how much does it cost. Also, one of the things you need to recognize is that some of these tablets will be stolen. Some of them will be you know, uh, corrupt. Some of the teachers won't know how to do it. Uh, you also need solar panels to make sure that you have uh, electricity if you don't have uh, power out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you also need uh, lockers so you can lock in the uh, the tablets at night. Uh, there's a lot of things that can go wrong, and we've estimated all of these things. Also, and crucially, this is why you only have it one hour a day, 
that the kids don't get the tablet. It turns out that that's a really bad thing because then they mostly just end up watching uh, Netflix and doing all uh, kinds of other things. So funny. Uh, really fast on this because this is where our worlds collide a little bit with my obsession with AI. So I brought up uh, the X Prize. They did a prize around this. They wanted to make sure that all kids were getting educated. Imad Mostak. Uh, won that prize. He's the guy that went on to found Stability AI, which gave us Stability Diffusion, which at one point accounted for like the top 10 apps on the, um, the app store for iPhone were all built on the back of Stability Diffusion. So his obsession is how do we use AI to educate people? How do we make it open source? How do we get it in the hands of all these kids? And I, there were two things that happened around the X prize. And I don't know where the borders are. So what I'm about to say, I think was Imad, but I'm not entirely sure, but it was definitely tied to the X prize. They went into some just ridiculously impoverished village. Um, there was like a, a border fence. They cut a hole in the fence and they affixed effectively an iPad, a, a tablet. And huh. they, they did not say a word it, the tablet wasn't even in the native language. They just affixed it with an internet connection. And something like three weeks later, they had 12-year-olds teaching themselves molecular biology because they were just navigating around and finding the stuff and finding videos and things that they were interested in. And I was just like, that is insane. And to me, it speaks to this idea of when you get somebody who can learn at their own pace, you will be shocked and how quickly they like find that lane of like, okay, I comprehend at this level. And then they just go ham because to your earlier point about um, 3G and getting people access to phones and the internet, the world's knowledge is at your fingertips the second you have access to the internet. It's it's really pretty incredible. I, I was not at all surprised to see education on your list. No. And 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 the reason why we are advocating this particular technology is partly because if you do one hour a day, you can partly you can spread out the usage of the uh, the tablets with lots of other kids. So the cost of the tablet becomes less of cost per kid. Uh, it's also that you need teachers buy in. Uh, not surprisingly, teachers are worried that AI or technology will basically take over their job, uh, and so by making sure that the teacher will sit with the kids for that one hour, ostensibly to help them with the technology problems, but really to say, this is part of your job, so they're not worried about this, is the way to make sure that teachers will actually embrace this sort of solution, making it possible to start this conversation. And also, this is what we've studied. We've studied this particular thing. We know this is incredibly good. It's possible that there's an even better thing out there, but this is pretty good already. So what we find is, for about $21, you can get a kid one hour a day for a whole year on this tablet. So the tablet will be spread out over, I think it's three or four years, the solar panels for 10 years, the uh, the box is also for 10 years. Uh, you also need to build a new classroom where you can do this. And that's also spread over 20 years. And, uh, and, and, and obviously the software is almost all up there, but it's very, very cheap when you have to do it for millions of kids anyway. And so if you look at that total cost is about 31, sorry, $21, for one kid for one year, but it means that for one year going to school, so seven hours of boring school, one hour of actually learning lots of stuff, you end up having learned as much as you normally would in one year over three years. Mm. Sorry, I said that badly, right? For every year you go to school, you learn what you normally would have learned in three, in years. three years. You're simply three times as good. And That's that crazy. matters. In because, an hour. Yeah. 
And then when you go out and you become uh, an adult, you will be more productive because now you actually have learned a lot more stuff, much better. And that means, and we know this from a lot of research, that reflects in your hourly wage. You'll simply have a higher hourly wage. And so we've estimated what's that value over time in all of these countries. And what we find is that for about $10 billion, so this is going to cost about $10 billion to uh, ramp this up to a lot of places, so get 90% of all kids in the poor half of the world this opportunity. But the benefit is that these kids will each and every year make $600 billion more in good uh, in, uh, in, in higher income. Remember, they'll actually make $6 trillion, but this is far off, and so we're discounting it back to today. It's worth less because it's far into the future. So it's about $600 billion, and that means for every dollar spent, you'll do $65 of good. I should just say, this is not the only way that we're talking. There's also, and you actually mentioned that, you could also do it without the technology. So you just simply, one hour a day, you take all the kids who should be in first grade and put them in to a first grade. You take all the kids who should be in second grade and put them into a, sec, a real second grade. It has a lot of social problems because you end up putting, you know, six years old and 12 year olds. And you also kind of point out, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, Steve here, not the brightest of the bunch. You're, you're not going to have the kind uh, of adherence. But, yeah. but they, but it's much cheaper because you don't need the tablets. Uh, and it's less effective, but it's also much cheaper. So we actually find it's also a really good idea. They do it in, in India, for instance. So we're suggesting that could be part of the solution. The last part is teachers are really bad. Teachers are poorly paid in most, uh, mo- most, uh, most places around the world. And they are struggling. Many of them are just, you know, a tiny bit better than the kids that they have to teach. And so if you give them structured or what we call semi-structured teacher plans, so you basically make an outline of what you should teach today mm. and tomorrow, every hour for the whole uh, year. If you do that and then take them in on some courses, and the, this has been done, uh, Kenya is now uh, taking this out to the whole country after having done it for about 10% of the population. Uh, so we know this works. It costs very, very little. And it can make the teachers become better teachers. And then you send out text messages to them every uh, every week. Oh, this week you're going to be teaching this, this, and this. And you know, it just simply makes the teachers teach better. And so you can both get the kids to learn better. That's the learning at the right level. And you can get the teachers to teach better. And what we say is we don't know what countries are going to pick. So we're simply saying one third of each of these three. If you do that, it'll cost $10 billion but the benefit will be about $600 million. This is definitely one of the things we should do. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. 
if you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. Yeah, no joke. That one feels like the beginning of a virtuous cycle. And again, I'm at the risk of beating a dead horse with how I've interpreted what you've put together here is this sense of... uh, all of the problems that we really care about are downstream of a few things. Keep people alive. That's one. Make sure that when they're born, that they survive, that the mother survives so that she can have the next kid and that she can raise them well. Um, and then getting them educated is going to create this upward spiral. So um, if like, imagine for a second that you're getting them that tablet, they're getting more educated then they, even, even if you spread this out over generations, which I don't think you need to do as you conceptualize this, but even if you did, a more educated parent is going to have a more educated child. And then that's just going to compound and compound and compound. And this is part of how the, you know, the West becomes the West. It's not like intellect is, is unevenly distributed. It's that there are oftentimes geographic things that create this sort of early disadvantage for some people or like malaria and things up just you got a bad draw of the the lottery on mosquitoes which is impossible to think that it can have that kind of consequence but you just walked us through the math it obviously does and so by getting them in this educational spiral um, you get them moving upwards the gdp goes up they're more wealthy they can afford more education they start having fewer kids more attention on the kids that they do have uh pouring more uh resources into those kids and so it's just like 
you just get richer and richer and better and better. And um, that's really, really interesting. And I just want to hammer a point home because- and You're also able to ha handle all other problems better. Yeah. Right. Great point. So your whole thesis around you become more resilient. So again, just- uh, climate being a gravitational center for you, uh, because so much of your life has revolved around this, that people are far more likely to survive climate catastrophe or be able to avoid climate catastrophe uh, if they are wealthier, because there are just so many of the knock-on effects we've been talking about. Um, and so going back, one thing that I, I've heard you bring up many times, but I never hear the interviewer push on this. I, I just want to highlight that this is, you, you spend an hour a day on the tablet and you get three years worth of learning in one year. And what happens if you're on the tablet for all eight hours of the day? Like, I'm sure it's not completely linear, but man, it's gonna be even better. It's crazy. I even think here in the Western world, we would be, we would be a lot farther ahead if we standardized the lesson plans Again, always based on data. So what teacher where created what lesson plan that yielded what outcome? Now you standardize that across as many people as you can get to take it in. And then it becomes a battle of curriculum, right? So right now we do that at the effectively at the at the national level. So it's nation versus nation. But um man, we really I'm going back to AI. Uh, with AI, we could really begin to track this stuff. So the people in this class with this curriculum using this software got this outcome on standardized tests, track them over time, do this well in high school, do this well in college, make this much money. Like now you can really, really start to optimize this stuff. It becomes really no, incredible. I, 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 I totally agree. I, I want to put down a few flags here, which is just there's a lot of stuff we don't know well. Uh, so we don't know what it would, uh, what, what the impact would be of eight hours of, uh, of tablet use. My su suspicion is that kids would be tired of it. Uh, COVID was a good example of, uh, distant learning is really, really hard because, you know, what is going to keep the kids there? They also learn a lot of other things in school. So I, I, you know, I would love to do some tests and actually find out is, is one hour the right uh, answer and it probably isn't. The reason why it's done is because it's much more acceptable to mm -hmm. teachers. It's much less sort of disruptive of the whole educational model. And yes. I think that's probably right if you want this to happen in the real world first. But yes, of course, we should actually have a conversation about should we do this a lot more? But then also, you know, look at what are the potential negative side effects. Uh, one obviously is that uh, uh, one of the outcomes of going to school is that you learn to navigate a, a social setting. But the main point here is, again, to say that that. There are other things you need to learn, and we need to make sure that we don't just get so excited with technology that that's the only thing out. Uh, one thing is, uh, so do you remember the uh, one laptop per child? Uh, it was a very, very common thing uh, like 10, 15 years ago, uh, and everybody loved the idea. Uh, but everybody that I knew would be saying, but we haven't actually tested. And when you started testing, it turned out it was not good at all. It mm. actually, and that's that's why it turned out that that it had no impact on learning. Uh, and it turned out that uh, teachers were saying that it actually make the, made the kids less attentive in class. Uh, so, so what we know from the evidence is that this is you. You don't just give them a, t a computer because 
what happens is they're going to end up watching Netflix, right? Mm. Uh, but what you want to do is to make sure that you put them in structured situations where they learn a lot using the tablet. And maybe one hour is as much as you can sort of handle a day. Uh, and I could certainly imagine I would, I would get really bored if I had to do this eight hours a day, uh, even if there was somebody sitting over my, you know, breathing down my neck and saying, you have to, you know, stay on, uh, on this target. The other bit I just want to mention was, we actually don't look at the compound effects of saying, so now we've gotten richer. Now that means the kids, uh, th this kid, when he or she grows up, will be much better educated. So their kids will be even better educated. And they'll leave this virtuous like, I think it's right, but we don't have the data to prove it. It's just way too hard to do. So this tells you something else, namely that it's very likely that most of the things I've just presented to you are underestimates of how good they are because we just, you know, when, when I talk to uh, uh, the tuberculosis people, they will tell you how many people don't die from tuberculosis because yeah, they're doctors and that's what they, that's how they think about it. But the fact that this, this will, so tuberculosis typically hit uh, 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 people in the thirties, forties, you know, just when they become parents. Uh, and so this means you lose you're uh, a mom or a dad and, you know, the whole family sort of careens out of control. We don't know what that has of an impact, but it's very likely not good. Uh, so the real benefit of this is probably much, much higher, but we don't include that because we don't have good enough models to it. Most people don't, you know, so in education, we only look at the in income impact because that's how education economists think about the whole world. But clearly learning more also means that you'll probably, at least to a certain point, be happier. You'll be more likely to experience successes in other things. You know, there's a whole lot. You'll probably be a better democratic citizen. There are all kinds of better uh, outcomes that we haven't included. So many of these, I suspect, are vast underestimates of the real benefits. But again, I don't feel like I have, you know, if 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 we get 52 back in the dollar, I don't think we have to sort of uh, say, but it might actually be even better than that. Mm, yeah, no, for sure. Um, okay, so I admittedly, I think I'm a bigger believer in uh, how valuable the time of the technology would be, but I'll let that go for now. Um, I, I want to make sure that we at least give people a headline uh, yeah. on the remaining, I think, eight that we still have to go through. Let's go through them all, and and then we'll pick a couple to to really dive into, and then there's a, another really important question I want to ask. So, sure. so um, I'll just go through the list here. Yep. Uh, so we look at nutrition. Obviously, hunger is a big problem. It turns out it's kind of hard to give out nutrition because if you give out food, it's hugely potentially corrupt. And so that's why uh, we don't have a really good solution. We have some reasonably good solutions for nutrition. It gives $18 back in the dollar. It's actually one of the lowest, uh, but we estimate you should spend $1.4 billion there and you can do some really good. Uh, chronic diseases, uh, sorry, but there's another way to fix uh, nutrition, which is agricultural research and development. So if you remember what really, we were worried back in the 60s and 70s, that uh, a lot of people would just simply die from hunger. You know, people estimated that India was just a 
basket case and you know we just had to triage and let india go kind of thing uh there's just not enough food for everyone and it would just get worse and worse instead we had what was known as the green revolution which basically made seeds much more productive so you had you planted a rice seed or a wheat seed or a, a corn seed and it simply produced two or three times the yield per acre that's simply uh, it's just magic out of the box and that's what basically saved a lot of human beings. The guy, he, uh, he, uh, he got a Nobel Prize, uh, Peace Prize for, for doing this, and he's credited for saving a billion people. Uh, so, you know. It's crazy how, like, that. nobody knows that guy's name. No, no. And this, yeah, and, this is and where our negativity bias is, and as I have one too, but it drives yeah. me crazy that, like, there's not statues of that guy. Um, yes. But, you know, the, it is very easy to get people to panic about what might happen, but it's hard to get them to celebrate what actually happens. Yes, exactly. Crazy. But Crazy. we should just mention his name, Norman Bolock. Everybody should know his name. But yeah, yes, no so, uh, so, but we need a green revolution for the poor half of the world because this was for rice, wheat, and, uh, and corn, uh, which is mostly rich country uh, mm. uh, uh, crops. We need it for sorghum and cassava and all these other things that you've never heard of, but also could use with much higher productivity. That would both mean that you would produce more, which is great for farmers, but you'd also have lower prices, which is great for urban consumers of these food products. And it would also mean lower hunger. Uh, we'd get about 100 million uh, people fewer uh, starving. So we estimate spend $5.5 billion there and you get a bang for a buck of about 33. So we should definitely do that. Uh, chronic diseases, uh, you know, um, you can't avoid people dying. <laughs> That's just not going to happen. Uh, but chronic diseases is something that hits us when we stop infectious diseases, and we can stop that from happening too soon. So that's typically heart disease and cancer. Cancer turns out to be much, much harder to do something about, but we should get people uh, those pills, which we talked about earlier, uh, for, uh, uh, for lower heart pressure. Uh, and a few other things, and you can do this. And it turns out it costs about $4.4 billion. Uh, the average bang for your buck is going to be 23. You can save one and a half million lives. The reason why it's not bigger is because these are all old people that we're saving. Unlike people uh, we save uh, from you know, tuberculosis or from uh, malaria, which are typically much younger people, saving older people means you only save them, say, uh, six or seven years. That's nice, but it's not as nice as saving a life all the way through. Right. Um, then we should do uh, land tenure security. Uh, mm. So a lot of people don't. Why do know you guys call it that? That's such a weird way of saying um, own your shit. Like land <laughs> yeah. tenured yeah, security. We, I, I don't. I don't think our our academic people would have allowed us to say that. But that is very Probably very not. true. Uh, own your shit. Uh, and and this is. This is mainly a question of saying that you are not certain that you own your land. Yeah. This matters a lot if you're a farmer. Uh, if I don't know if I have this uh, land in five or 10 years, I'm not going to invest in digging up all the stones and improving the soil or getting irrigation or planting an orchard that will only start giving fruits in five or 10 years. I'm going to just do the quick and dirty thing because that's the only thing I know will you know pay out while I'm still there. Um, and that, of course, lowers productivity. And likewise, if I have a house in uh, an urban setting or a, an apartment, I'm not going to 
change my kitchen. This is actually not the main thing that you do, but this is sort of a first world way of, of thinking about it. All right. I'm not going to change the kitchen if I don't know if I can sell it and get the, that money back eventually, if if I might just get replaced. Actually, about a billion people out of 5 billion people they asked in the world think that it's very likely that they will be evicted from something they think they own in the next wow. five years. This is Crazy. this is just a stat. And so it's about getting making sure that you get the uh uh the structures set up. So you need to have, for instance, cadastral surveys, basically land maps that show who owns everything. And then suddenly you start realizing that you and your neighbor don't agree on what I actually own. No, no, no. My grandfather actually said it went here. Mm. But then you you work it out with the elders, and then you need to have some of this go to court, but it will dramatically improve. Uh, efficiency in your society. And because a lot of these societies are very based on agriculture still, that's a great way to do it. So we estimate the uh, the net bang, it's going to cost $1.8 billion. But also deliver- from a capital standpoint, that the property you own is typically people's most, yes. uh, their, their biggest investment, the thing they can borrow against, the thing that allows them to extract value from their own efforts. Yes. Anyway, we could totally derail on that. But that that one is is huge. Yeah, huge. Yes. So there's two left. I'm just going to talk very briefly about skilled migration, which is something a lot of economists would argue. Uh, If you look at uh, someone... uh, who works at, you know, say McDonald's and in, in, uh, in Ethiopia and the s- very same job done in the U S the pay is about 15 times higher, right? You're just simply much more productive in most places where you have lots of other smart people around you. That's just basically how it is. Uh, and, and one argument that a lot of economists would actually make is there's a huge misallocation of work in the world. So, a lot more of the world's poor should actually be working in rich countries. That would be great for them. And obviously, that would be great for inequality. However, this would also be hugely politically problematic. A lot of people would not like to see a couple of billion people move uh, to the rich West. It's also unlikely that this would actually work out as well as a lot of economists argue. But what we find is, if you focus on skilled migration and if you focused on a small amount, so you basically say, imagine 10% more skilled migration than you already have. So that means a country like Canada that has lots of immigrants would take 10% of a fairly large number, but countries that are very skeptical would take 10% of a very low number. Mm. If you do that for really skilled, so that's doctors, engineers, STEM workers generally, you could actually move these people and make them much more productive in their new countries, and that would have huge benefits. It would even benefit the poorer countries. Yes, they would lose their doctors in the short while, but what it would mean would that it would be more advantageous to learn to become a doctor because you have an opportunity to actually go to a rich place as well. And it would also mean that you would have remittances that would more than outweigh the loss that you would see uh, from from losing your doctor. So overall, we find that those would cost $2.8 billion, but the benefit would be 20 times that. The last one, and this is the one I just want to spend a little more time on, is free trade or more trade. Uh, We've known for a very, very long time that one of the real reasons why we get richer is that we trade with each other. You do what you're best at, I do what I'm best at, then we trade, and that means we both get a better outcome than if you'd done everything yourself and I'd done everything myself. This is you know old knowledge back from Adam Smith and uh, Ricardo and many others. 
Uh, and we used to have a very, very strong understanding from most of the, uh, uh, the elite in the world that more trade was actually good. We also used to neglect the fact that it's not good for everyone. If you sewed T-shirts in the 1970s in the U.S., you would lose out when you started opening up for Bangladesh, right? Because they can just simply sew T-shirts better and cheaper in Bangladesh. So you would lose out your job. And that was what happened to a certain extent. And, you know, the, the Rust Belt is a good example of that. There's actually people who lose out to free trade. And so economists have been very, very bad at addressing this. What has happened is because a lot of people have sort of almost weaponized that, uh, uh, that Rust Belt. That's what's happened with Trump and many others that, you know, we've made this into maybe we shouldn't have free trade or we should at least have a lot less of it. Uh, we should make sure we embargo China. We should make sure we embargo a lot of different places. That actually makes all of us less well off, but it will help these people in the Rust Belt. So the argument has been maybe that's a a, 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 a loss that's worth taking to make sure that these people have can still work in in you know shipping uh, what where you build ships shipyards um, or that kind of thing instead of just sending all of it to South Korea and now on to Vietnam and other places. Well, so that's going to end up being a a very politically challenging problem because if that's a large enough voting constituency, because one thing I don't want to be Pollyanna about is a lot of the things that you're pitching are like, hey guys, we're already in the wealthy West. And so if you're struggling in the wealthy West, a lot of these things don't really apply to you. Uh, and yeah. so I I have a feeling they're going to be less receptive and they're going to be like, that's yes. not making my life better. Uh, and, so why would I ever vote for that? Yes. So, so what we've done here is, and I think this is the first time it's been academically done, is to try and estimate what is the benefits of free trade? That is, we all get richer. But also, what are the costs to free trade? That is, the people who work in import-exposed industries will have a risk of losing their jobs or seeing lower pay or just simply being essentially uh, uh, dropping out. of. They're the, pushed uh, out of the marketplace. Yes, pushed out of the marketplace. Much better. Uh, and, and we've done that model and then done it with a standardized uh, trade model and then looked at what would happen if we increase global trade by 5%. And it turns out that for rich countries, that is where most of the costs are going to come. That's, of course, why rich countries now have gotten, ooh, maybe we're not all that sure about uh, 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 free trade. It turns out that for rich countries, trade is still overall a great thing. It turns out that the benefits of, uh, of an extra 5% trade is about $8 trillion. But the costs are about a trillion dollars. So you get 7 seven times as much good out of it as the cost, but the costs are real and significant. And that's why we need to be much more aware of saying, look, if you're going to have trade, you also need to make sure that you do something for the Rust Belt. That's more education. It's more opportunity to move to other sectors where they can then be competitive again. And maybe just straight out that we also subsidize them at least for a couple of years, you know, uh, unemployment uh, benefits of some sort. This is not going to solve all the problems, but it's certainly uh, addressing there's a real issue. But even for rich countries, this is a great thing. We can do $7 of good for every dollar we end up losing. That's a great thing. And there's certainly enough money to go around to make sure that we compensate the losers. But for the poor half of the world, it turns out the benefits are astounding. For every dollar spent 
that is jobs lost, they will gain $95 of benefits. And that's basically because all of the trade that they're going to be doing is the stuff that they can do better. So the poor half of the world will do amazingly good with us. The rich world will also do good, but not nearly as good. So we have to be more clear on our, our, our understanding that we're going to address the downside, the rust belts of the world. But fundamentally, free trade is just a way to make everyone richer. But we have to be aware that there are trade-offs and we have to be you know, cognizant of that. But I think the study helps us say maybe we shouldn't be quite as gloom and against uh, trade. We should just recognize it has downsides but we can actually afford uh, to do something about it. So that's the last one. It's going to cost $1.7 billion, but it's going to generate $166 billion of benefits for the poor half of the world or $95 back on the dollar. Man, that that one's very interesting. So I want to take head on um, what the potential challenges would be. So, um, and this is where I'm going to speak directly to my uh, climate concern, brothers and sisters out in the world. Okay, so um, I keep drawing this direct parallel. I feel like maybe you don't agree quite as fervently, and you'll let me know here, but um, that as we lift the poorer half of the world out of poverty, they will, as a matter of course, um, they will... And the problem is they're going to pass through a period where they're worse for the environment, but they're going to then get to a point where they're better for the environment. And so if we take a longer view, and this is where uh, you're, we just keep coming back to, if you believe the world is ending in five years, we've got real problems. And so you constantly have to, um, I mean, you've been very clear about what your thoughts are there, but man, I'm realizing as, as I even try to explain this now that it really does hinge on, can we, uh, one, are you right? that we don't have this really near-term uh, catastrophe staring us in the face. I am not knowledgeable enough in this. This is where I go to. I can tell you how I think through the problem, but I cannot at all give you data. Um, but the if we understand that like California in the 50s, yes, or China today, which China is both bringing on more green energy, I think, than anybody else, but they're also bringing on more coal plants than anybody else. Uh, and so it is this sort of mixed bag, but that you you want to push people up into a, a much more wealthy place as fast as humanly possible, because with that will come the innovation, will come the fewer children, will come the bigger investment into those kids, will become the more education, all that. And as we do that, the data shows that they will care far more about the future. Thusly, they will care far more about the environment and they will be better stewards, which feels like the way through if we can get everybody to understand that uh, that we don't have a near term. We have a problem. We have a problem that needs mm. to be addressed and we should be addressing it right now today, but that we do have more time maybe than, than people think. Uh, okay, so, but with that, we get back to, um, you're going to get a lot of people pushing back on that. I, uh, you weren't in America when this was popping off, but there was like this whole weird moment that, that I really got caught off guard by, which was, hey, AI is going to take over trucking jobs. Everybody thought that was going to be the first thing. And, and trucker, sorry, you're just out of luck. And people said, well, they should learn to code. And I was like, yeah, word, they should learn to code. Because the reality is, 
Um, you, I don't think it wise for people to just say, oh, I'm facing a change. I don't know how to code. That's for people smarter than me. I give up, right? But it, it, you would get banned off of Twitter at one point. You would get uh, your video delisted on YouTube if you said the phrase, learn to code. And I was like, what? Like, I get it. Not everybody's going to do it. Not everybody's going to be willing, whatever. But to say, you can't even say it. Like, that that just doesn't make any sense to me. I'm very dizzy by that. But I accept now that that is a reality. So you're going to run into people who are like, hey, do not uh, open free trade. We tried that. Terrible. We become over-reliant on China. People have leverage against us. We outsource our infrastructure. We strip our jobs. You get Rust Belt. You get Detroit. Like just all, all bad things. What on earth are you doing? Um, is there any argument other than cheaper goods, which is, I'm guessing, where you're saying that we get the value. Uh, so is there any argument other than cheaper goods and, hey, you're helping the world's poor and that makes them care more about the future and therefore they'll be better for the environment? Are those the only two opportunities we have to convince people or is there anything else? So I want to I, I want to get back and answer, answer your question, but I think I actually first want to take this uh, a, a step back. Uh, if you remember, I, I was saying, I'm simply saying here's a menu with prices and sizes. These are 12 great things. I'd be very surprised if everyone will take all 12 of them. And that's great. You know, if 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 most people take end up taking six of them, I'm I'm all happy and excited about this. So I'm but, not then let me ask you one quick point on that. When you guys came up with the 12, were you like, oh man, like free trade made the list, damn it. And uh, the environment didn't, like, were you kind of like, why couldn't the environment be $55 return? So yes, I would have liked, so <laughs> we actually had another one. I'm, I'm very, very sorry uh, on uh, on coral reefs uh, that we estimated uh, delivered $24 back in the dollar. Uh, but since then, there's a new study out that showed that one basic problem that was missing was that when you restrict a fishing for a while, that makes more fish and that makes more uh, 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 it makes more tourism and it makes more ecological value, which is all great. But it also restricts the local fishermen. And if it if it has to have a real impact, it actually has to have a real cost, and that cost was not included. Um, uh, and and so what we found was, well, this is actually not a terribly great investment. It's probably two or three, but it's not at 15 and it's not 24 either. Uh, so that's one of the things we we pull out. Yes, I was really annoyed because I would love to have had it. It's, you know, it's a great thing, but you can't, you know, you can't argue with us. You, you, know, you We have to uh, 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 cut it the way that we that we see it and the best evidence that's, that's out there. Um, the main point here, again, is to say, if we take the total of everything we've just talked about, it'll cost $35 billion a year. This is everything, all save, 12, all, 35 all billion. 12, $35 billion, and it'll save 4.2 million lives, and it'll generate $1.1 trillion for the world's poor half. This is just an outstanding opportunity. And remember, while I don't think you have, and I certainly don't have $35 billion in my, you know, in my back pocket to just finance this, um, but on a global level, this really is couch change. Uh, you know, of all the different things that we're spending on, I'm simply saying, let's do these best things first. This does not mean that you can't argue for your favorite thing, and that could be climate change or AI or any other thing. I'm simply saying, we're so rich that we at least should do 
these 12 incredibly cheap and incredibly powerful things first. So just to give you an example, um, right now, the world spends about $1.1 trillion on climate. We can probably spend $35 billion and then get back to spending almost $1.1 trillion in this. Every year, the world spends $2 trillion in military. You know, maybe we should just take out the $35 billion and then get back to spending $2 trillion in, on military and so on. So my argument is not to say that you can't also be engaged in all kinds of other things. It's just that the argument seems to tell us that when you do the analysis, these 12 things are so good that it's almost immoral not to just get those 12 things done. Now, there's reasons why these don't happen. You know, for instance, the tuberculosis, it doesn't happen because if you're rich in a rich country, you don't get tuberculosis. But also if you're rich in a poor country, you don't get tuberculosis. These are poor people in poor countries, often without a voice. You know, they're the migrant workers or the uh, mining industry or, you know, prison population, those kinds of places. And they don't get you a lot of votes. But we should get this word out that this is actually a great thing to make sure that people don't die from these things and make sure that their local governments spend more money on, that philanthropists and USAID and others spend more money on. And likewise, with all these 12 things. So I'm simply making the argument, these are best things first. Let's just squeeze that little $35 billion in there uh, and then get back to all the other things that we that we would constantly debate. And, and given the very small size of this, it's really not a, a, a big conversation. I'm not asking for us to spend, as, as we talked about with the 169, I'm not asking us to spend another $15 trillion, which would be hard to do, but $35 billion, which is like, what, 500 times less. Man, that's crazy. Now, one thing when I was taking notes, um, I only got nine things. So there was something that I have put together into a couple uh, similar ones or, or mashed together. So, but anybody that took notes like I did might be going 12. I've only got nine. So I want to make sure that we get them all. Uh, here's what yeah. I have. Um, e-procurement, the baby breathing mother giving birth in institutions. Yeah. Um, we've got infectious disease solutions. Education. Yeah, but that's, two, that's tuberculosis and okay. malaria. I wondered about two, that. Yeah. So that that takes us to ten. Uh, then we've got education, uh, nutrition, hunger. Is that two different ones? Yeah, nutrition is one. So that's that's about getting uh, 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 vitamins to pregnant mothers and calcium to pregnant mothers, and to get uh, 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 feeding. Uh, but if it's only one line item, is what I'm saying. Yes. That's nutrition. The other one was agricultural research and development. These Got are two it. very different communities, but they both address nutrition. Yes. So now we're up to Got 11. Yep. yep. So uh, then we've got uh, chronic diseases, land yes. tenured security, uh, skilled yep. migration, free trade. So there's still yes. one that oh, I can't and, account for. And, then that's, and that is right. I missed that. That's childhood immunization. Uh, so it's basically, yeah, you know, we've, we've, uh, immunized a lot of the world, uh, giving them vaccines against measles and many others. And it's been a phenomenal benefit. We estimate this saves somewhere between four and possibly as many as 7 million kids each and every year. This is just, you know, we should definitely be doing this. You can have all the conversations about vaccine for, for COVID, but, you know, vaccines against, uh, 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 measles, we just know works and is incredibly effective. It'll cost more to get the last 
10, 15% that are missing in the world. Uh, but even with that, uh, for about $1.7 billion, you can save half a million extra kids. And it means that for every dollar spent, you'll do $101 back on, on, on the dollar. And it's really, really incredible. This this whole thing has has blown my mind, and I just want to um, thank you for giving a conceptual framework that people can follow. I think it's it's really brilliant way of thinking through hard problems, prioritizing, and truly doing the best things first. Where can people follow you to get more of this uh, very wise way of thinking? So uh, on uh, Twitter, uh, Lomborg, uh, Bjorn Lomborg is my Twitter handle. Uh, we have, uh, so the Copenhagen Consensus, my think tank who's organized all of this. Uh, so copenhagenconsensus.org uh, is where you can see it. And then, of course, you can uh, read the book. I just want to show you the book because we actually published the conclusion on the cover. And most people don't see it right in front. But it actually has this line. is It says benefits here. And that has the cost down here. So you can literally see you know, it has this I've, tiny bit of cost. I have that and book and didn't even notice that that's what that was. That there you is go. hysterical. So the conclusion is in the cover. You just have to watch the cover and then you're done. Amazing, man. Thank you so much for joining me today. Boys and girls, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.